This is a Village Soundcast Network original production. Welcome to Lends Me Your Ears, the movie podcast that takes a look at current films, either in theaters or on streaming services, and then compares them to films from days gone by. My name is Stephen Cook, and I'm an arts writer here in Halifax. My name is Karsten Knox. I write a blog called Flaw in the Iris. You can find at halifaxbloggers.ca. And today we're taking a look at the career of one of the true giants of cinema, uh, the work of Orson Welles in anticipation of the biopic Mank coming out, directed by David Fincher and looking at the creation of one of Orson Welles' greatest films, uh, Citizen Kane, and the life of its screenwriter, Herman J. Mankiewicz. But uh, in advance of its release, uh, in theaters and on Netflix later this month, we're going to take a look at the work of Welles himself right after this. So as you said, Stephen, we're looking forward to David Fincher's new film, Mank, expected in cinemas soon and on Netflix on December 4th. We thought we'd we actually thought that Mank would show up in cinemas before we started recording this episode of Lens Me Your Ears, episode 111. Unfortunately, it did not. So, uh, yeah, as you said, Mank is about Herman Mankiewicz, uh, Wells' co-writer of Citizen Kane, um, and apparently British actor Tom Burke is starring as Wells, uh, directed by David Fincher. Um, so what we're going to do, this is going to be kind of a two-parter. We're going to start this week talking about Wells, talking about his films, talking about the inspiration for Mank. And then uh, the next time we get together to talk about movies on Lens Mirrors, we'll talk about David Fincher and about his career, which in the last 30 years has been pretty impressive. There's not too many uh, problematic films, uh, troubled films in his, uh, maybe a couple, but <laughs> mostly great films in his uh, filmography. But yeah, this has been quite a pleasure this week, going back to watch old Orson Welles films. Of course, I had seen Citizen Kane. I had seen Touch of Evil, but a lot of those films I hadn't seen. So this was a great opportunity to check them out. Um, Obviously, Welles is now considered one of the great filmmakers in American cinema. Uh, but he's a troubled one with so many unfinished projects. He even has like a Wikipedia section of unfinished films. Um, so many films where he fought with Hollywood producers. I feel like he really resisted any control of his projects and he would pick fights with the studios. And sometimes, you know, sometimes he'd win, a lot of times he'd lose. And I, I think I think his career was definitely his ability to get a film made in Hollywood was uh, was after the first ten years of his career became exponentially harder for him. Uh, but you know what also is interesting about him is is aside from his gifts as a filmmaker, which are we'll talk about some of the ways in which he's such a maverick filmmaker. He also was quite a impressive actor, and he starred many times in his own films, but he also starred in films for other people. Maybe his most famous starring role is t- is in uh, The Third Man with for Carol Reed, uh, where he's only, apparently only had a week of work as a supporting character, but he is the one that everyone talks about in that film, so it's the one people remember so well. Um, but uh, yeah, w- what's your feeling about Orson Welles, Stephen? I, I know... I know you've got a number of his films in your library, but uh, you you must be a fan. Oh, big time. Uh, I remember seeing 
Citizen Kane for the first time. I, I think it was like a late night CBC airing of it with commercial breaks uh, back when uh, they used to have a late night classic movie show on uh, throughout the week. And uh, that would have been my introduction to it. And then I saw it again. I took a, a film class from Robert Merritt at Dalhousie and uh, we actually got to see a, a 16 millimeter print of it. Um, in one of the theaters in the uh, in the Dell Arts Center, which was a real treat to see it on, you know, 16 millimeter, still not uh, 35, but it's still a nice way to see it on film on a bigger screen and and really kind of appreciate some of the things that Wells was doing uh, it, with uh, his cinematographer Greg Toland in that film. Uh, a lot of stuff for the first time, and a lot of it. Uh, you know, things that Toland had done previously uh, here and there, um, things like deep focus and so on, and then utilizing them uh, with even greater strength and uh, and ability and know-how uh, in Citizen Kane. So, you know, that was, that was pretty eye-opening. And of course, uh, you know, it was one of those films that you always read about as being a great film. And sometimes that can be maybe not a pejorative, but sometimes if something is branded a great film, it almost becomes something you either avoid or or just you know you you kind of shy away from it because somehow you don't know if you're up for watching it or you think it's going to be like homework or something like that but but the great thing about citizen kane is it's also highly entertaining it's you know of course it often gets listed at the top of uh the best films of all time lists uh recently i think sighted and sound had it there for years i think it was unseated by vertigo uh, you know, within the last decade anyway, by the Hitchcock film. But uh, it is a highly entertaining film. There's a lot of humor in it. Uh, there's there's some wonderful uh, performances. Uh, you know, some, sometimes it gets a bit hammy. Um, you know, Wells wasn't afraid to push things over the top or push his actors over the top um, because, of course, that's what worked for him on the stage and in radio before he ever got near a film studio. But uh, again, it's 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 certainly worth watching, and it, it, it is not homework at all to watch this uh, this wonderful <laughs> film and then you know go back and rewatch it you know every few years to see what you missed or pick up on uh, on new things you may not have noticed uh, in in every frame. Yeah, and this is a film that. You know, what with Wells's reputation over the years, having just grown and grown and, you know, watching some of his films on the Criterion Channel where there's so many documentaries and interviews with him, there's, for a film student, for a film fan, there's so much, you can go as deep as you want with these, with these projects, with this one especially, there's a lot to to pick apart there's there's the the inspiration the fact that it was supposedly inspired by william randolph hearst wells denied it but of course there were lots of parallels with hearst uh and his life um and uh and as you said it's topped these greatest film lists for years up with raging bull and the godfather and, and uh and vertigo um it's still a powerfully relevant story, I think. I think that's part of what makes it so entertaining is that as generations go by, it doesn't lose any of its sort of storytelling power. It's a story. It's a relevant story of American achievement and hubris. Watching again this week, I was prompted to think of Donald Trump more than <laughs> once. Scandal and power and pride. And Kane becomes a piteous kind of pathetic figure despite all of his money and his success he raged against those he couldn't control and uh it, it's interesting there's this thread through orson's well orson wells work of these people where pride you know pride then comes the fall and he's frequently that person that sort of monstrous figure who can't who makes the mistake who who has the the, the terrible fate um and when he made Citizen Kane, he was 25. I mean, think about that. That's just kind of 
boggles the mind that he had that much understanding uh, then and that his themes as a storyteller were already kind of focused. And, you know, later in life, he also, you know, he did some Shakespeare adaptations. He was very understanding of literary sources and he, he turned a lot of, of books into films. Um, but uh, yeah, this one, um, you know, I think, I think as a filmmaker watching it again, there's also the way he used the camera. You mentioned the deep focus with his, uh, Greg Toland, his cinematographer. That is incredible. And the, the way he loves to have these upward looking shots to create this towering kind of effect of, of architecture and, um, uh, design behind his actors and uh, uh, and and the ceilings of, of a lot of these interiors are a big part of this story. Um, for anyone who hasn't seen Citizen Kane, it's you know it's about a newspaper magnate about his his rise and his fall and his rise and the scandals, his two marriages, told through the eyes of reporters interviewing the people who knew them, and and of course a lot of the reporters we don't even really get to know them because they're in shadow. He shoots them. You know, from behind, you never really get to see their faces. Um, str- watching it again, I noticed the creativity in the filmmaking. I, I loved how um, how just wonderfully dramatic the the staging of these shots are. I'm amazed, in fact, that more filmmakers don't borrow from him. Maybe because it's too obvious, but uh, he, he invented. I don't think it's too much to say that he invented a whole like narrative structure with his his cinematography with his filmmaking that that feels very Wellesian still does and I guess maybe that's why people don't use it that often because because it's just so identified with him yeah he's he's frequently fond of of shaking up the narrative structure with flashbacks and and uh starting stories you know maybe starting them in the middle um and then jumping back and forth and well Citizen Kane starts at the end and then worked its way back. Um, it wasn't the first film to do that. Uh, you know, I, I've I've seen other films from the 30s and so on that that have this unusual kind of mix of flashbacks and flash forwards and and that kind of thing. But but you know, he certainly uses it to uh, to one of its uh, best advantages in Citizen Kane, especially showing the story from different viewpoints from from different narrators trustworthy or otherwise and then incorporating you know the parody of the of the time time newsreels you know with the their halting awkward speech and um you know stock footage and all that kind of stuff you know that the, and you know using footage that he's dragged through the muck to make it look authentic you know back before anybody really cared about that sort of thing so uh he definitely wanted to do he loved movies obviously but he definitely wanted to do something that would uh shake things up and and hope that the audience would uh would follow him uh you know into uh his his way of playing with uh was it the greatest train set a boy was ever given was <laughs> how, i think how he referred to the the movie studio at rko when he was handed the keys for uh, for citizen kane mm-hmm. um and uh, it, it's it's bracing to watch even now, it's, you know, especially if you watch a bunch of other things from that year. Uh, and I think I think uh, a lot of people didn't necessarily know how to react to Citizen Kane. I mean, it wasn't a huge hit at the time for a couple of reasons. Obviously, the Hearst papers had a vendetta against this film and uh, did everything they ca- could to, to sink it. Um, and it's uh, it was certainly received a less than inspiring uh, publicity campaign. If you look at the original posters for Citizen Kane, they're really not terribly exciting or attractive. The best uh, tagline they could come up for it was it's terrific. And that's, it's like, and that's, that was the sell line for citizen gain. Uh, not much of uh, 
not much of a come on for that film. But uh, but, you know, the audience did sort of follow him, just not maybe as quickly as he would have liked. Yeah. And I, I appreciate that, that it took a while for people to call it the greatest films. Uh, that ever made though I, I I watched Simon Callow who is one of Orson Welles you know the great biographer also great actor talk about how even in the 40s those people many people in the know thought Citizen Kane was probably one of the great films um, and uh, but I you know watching it I I don't think it's a perfect film I think I think in some ways the whole structure of of having people interviewed about someone who we don't really we see in flashback keeps us at arm's length from the character also because the character is is frequently not very likable um you know there's there's there it's interesting that kane's wife and son die in a car accident off screen and it's never really his reaction to that is never really dealt with like there are aspects of the narrative that are uh, i think intentionally distancing so to make it feel maybe more universal um but you know what? The first time watching it this week for me was The Magnificent Ambersons, which is his follow-up in 1942, which I absolutely loved. It's such a compelling drama. It feels like an elegy for the end of an era. It's a sad recognition of the changes in America from stylish, wealthy oligarchs in the 19th century to the harsh realities of urban 20th century um, it's about the cost of progress. It could also be read as a cautionary tale about the dangers of coddling children. But uh, but it's uh, you know it, it's it's funny to to see again that there is there is an overview here, a thematic overview, which in some way lends it to comparison with Citizen Kane. Um, anyway, I don't know. Do we want to talk uh, talk? Want to get into uh, Magnuson Amberson, uh, Stephen? What, what did you make of it? Well, it's it's funny. I was kind of late to Magnificent Ambersons. I didn't see it for the first time until not fairly recently, but you know, a number of years ago. It was one of those films that had just was just not available. It took a long time coming out on DVD. I actually had it on a Criterion Laserdisc, which had gone out of print uh, certainly decades ago, and that, that was kind of my first exposure to it. But I don't think uh, I really appreciated it at the time, and and I feel like it's the kind of film that does grow richer with repeated viewings i've probably seen it about three times now and uh you know just the the layering of the story and the interaction between the characters and and what it really means for this this family this the rise and fall of this family um over the course of the film uh is is something maybe i i think you might appreciate more as you get older um i'm not sure but uh but but there's also a very personal connection to the material uh, for Wells, which I think uh, I think you feel even in the, the film, which, of course, as we know, was butchered by the studio um, because, of course, Wells went off on this so-called cinematic wild goose chase to South America um, when the film was still in the editing stages. You know, even even then with with material shot by other people and, and that doesn't match the footage shot by Wells, even then it's, it's still a powerful story. Uh, and uh, and Wells, of course, uh, has said that the 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 family uh, c- came from the the book, uh, the Magnificent Ambersons, the Pulitzer Prize winning novel by Booth Tarkington uh, from 1914. And that, uh, you know, Eugene Morgan, the character played by Joseph Cotton, is sort of loosely based on Wells father, who was a bit of a an entrepreneur and, um, you know, a bit of a, a, a devil may care kind of businessman, much like uh, uh, Eugene is in the film. And I, I think, uh, you know, he has a real warmth and a fondness for the setting of the film and, and that kind of Midwestern um, 
background and 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 values of the film and uh and also you know that that fascination with uh nostalgia and the dangers of nostalgia i i think it's all they're all themes that uh you know he held close to his heart and would return to in in future uh, future films and uh it's uh you know you know it's it was a great heartache of his life that the film turned out the way it did but uh i think what he put into it uh, still resonates Oh yeah, for sure. And you know, I, we should talk a little bit about the plot of this thing for anyone who hasn't seen the Magnus Andersons. It's as I said, this wealthy family in small town America. Isabel Anderson, Amberson, excuse me, is is courted by a young man named Morgan, but he upsets her and she goes off and marries a man she doesn't especially love. But that union produces George Amberson Minter, a spoiled brat no one in the town likes. Everyone hopes will one day get his comeuppance. Unfortunately, his entitlement continues into adulthood, and he takes a shine to Morgan's daughter, Lucy. After George's father dies, his mother and Morgan get close again, but George won't have any of that. I think he feels that that his mother's reputation is, is, uh, is in play here. And that's kind of the key conflict of the film, how George can't countenance the possibility that his mother could love again and the so-called damage it could do to her. Later, when hard times come to George, he finally understands how stupid he was to try and keep Morgan and his mother apart. But by then, it's a little too late. Uh, you know, I found it very emotionally affecting. Um, there, there is a, uh, you know, it's, it's a challenging film because at its center is this sort of venal, selfish ass played by George, played by Tim Holt. Um, and the only way we really end up caring for him is because everyone else in the movie loves and forgives him for being the way he is, and he eventually learns this hard lesson of pride. Um, there is an argument to be made that the most tragic character in the film is George's Aunt Fanny, played by Agnes Moorhead, who is familiar to me from Bewitched, of all things. But her character, you know, also loved Morgan, played by uh, Joseph Cotton, but um, she was never really in contention, and you really feel her pain. There's a scene later in the scene, in the film, which is just tragic, where she basically falls apart. Um, yeah, I, I uh, you were talking about, before we started recording, Stephen, about how it's really interesting to see a film that looks to the past, that's actually made in the past. Like, this film was made and released in 1942, but it has a nostalgia for an era previous to itself you know and i was thinking about um the um the life and death of colonel blimp has that same kind of thing and i i find that that's what i find so fascinating about magnificent ambersons is it how it it romanticizes an earlier era looking at it from 40 year or 50 years on from the 1940s yeah it's like the 1940s version of american graffiti or something like that (laughs) yeah exactly exactly maybe with a little more attention to to period detail. I don't know what the, Orson Welles was uh, pretty, pretty specific about uh, you know how he wanted things to look and and the, the look of the house. They built this humongous interior set at RKO to uh, represent the the Amberson house, and uh, they make great use of it uh, in terms of the, the the winding staircase, which is uh, one of the more famous aspects of the film, as well as the famous party scene that happens early on in the film, which was shot in these long, flowing, continuous takes by uh, Stanley Cortez, who was the cinematographer um, in this instance. And it's, uh, you know, er- er- every scene is is it's just filled with detail and movement and character. And, and, and that is true of, of Wells's films pretty much all the way through that you know he he just had a an eye and an ear for for dialogue and and for mise-en-scene for lack of a better word for, for what was happening in the scene that would keep the the viewer uh, 
viewer uh, entranced. And uh, Amberson's, you know, even though it's this, you know, this sweeping family drama, it doesn't really descend into kind of soap opera kind of um, elements because there's so much else uh, going on in it in terms of the visuals and in terms of the history that it's portraying. And, and, it, and you know, in terms of the kind of, these these larger than life performances and you know it's so funny that that uh i mean when i first watched it uh years ago i thought it was going to be about joseph cotton's character he was kind of the biggest star in the film even though he wasn't that big a star at the time um but certainly a well-known actor you know in retrospect uh well respected for his work over the years and a lot of it done with wells uh, and then find out it's about this character played by Tim Holt, who I knew very well from his starring role in The Treasure of the Sierra Madre, which just happens to be my favorite film of all time. Uh, and uh, of course, he's so different from his character in the John Huston film, uh, you know, playing playing this spoiled hothead. Um, and it was so different from what he usually did, which were kind of B-picture Westerns. That's what he was most happiest to do um, through the bulk of his career. But uh, he, here he is in these two landmark films made by two directors who, as it turns out, happen to be lifelong friends. Uh, and, uh, you know, he's it's one of those characters that you hate but are fascinated by at the same time. And, and again, that, that just pulls you right through the narrative. Yeah. Oh, for sure. And a couple other uh, important people to mention in this film as well. Robert Wise is the film editor, who, of course, Robert Wise went on to have a great career as a director, West Side Story and Star Trek, the motion picture, amongst many others. Uh, I really like Joseph Cotton in the film, and, and I, I like that he is a regular Wells sort of, you know, Wells who came from radio and from theater had kind of a, a, a company that he worked with. Um, and Ann Baxter is also really good as Lucy. Uh, the daughter and uh, she's uh, I really liked her in this and of course I guess maybe is it all about Eve that Ann Baxter is in later on I, I feel like I've seen her that's since yeah that's definitely her things. probably her most famous screen role but of course she was in in tons of films over the years but I believe the Magnificent Amerson's I think is her debut I, I'm not sure if Wells saw her in a play at some point and just knew she would be uh be perfect to play Lucy. Uh, well, when I look on IMDb, there were a couple of uh, other roles in there, some some minor parts prior to that. But uh, but of course, uh, you know, Amberson's had a lengthy production, so so it could be that it was done before some of those other films came out. But she is certainly wonderful here as Lucy, and she she has uh, you know a great intelligence and kind of a poetic spirit uh, that uh, that single that character out for sure. <laughs> Hi, and welcome back to Lens Me Your Ears. This is a podcast taking a look at new films and then comparing them to older films from days gone by. And our new film is a film called Mank, which is a highly anticipated look at the life of Herman J. Mankiewicz, the screenwriter who is co-credited with Orson Welles for the screenplay behind Citizen Kane, uh, ostensibly the greatest film ever made. And uh, it's directed by David Fincher, based on a script written by David Fincher's father. And... Uh, it's going to be showing up on Netflix in December, but is also having a brief theatrical run uh, prior to that. We're not 100% sure if it's going to show up in theaters in our neck of the woods here in Halifax, Nova Scotia, but I, I see that it is getting some sort of Canadian release on November 20th. So fingers crossed and knock on wood that it's going to show up here. It'd be great to see, uh, you know, Fincher's work is always visually striking and it'd be great to see it on a big screen before it shows up on Netflix. But uh, here's a sample of the trailer, which of course has been making the rounds for, uh, for about a month now and it's it's definitely got me psyched to to see this film and see fincher's take on the making of one of the greatest films that we know it's orson welles 
Of course there is. I think it's time we talk. What is it the writer says? Tell the story you know. Make yourself to home, Mr. Mankowitz, or shall I call you Herman? Please, call me Mank. Mank! 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 This is Herman Mankowitz, but we're to call him Mank. Mankowitz? Herman Mankowitz, New York playwright and drama critic turned humble screenwriter, Mr. Hurst. This is a business where the buyer gets nothing for his money but a memory. What he bought still belongs to the man who sold it. That's the real magic of the movies. Thunder, lightning, blood, fire, religion. Help! Someone save me! All in one film. That's director proof. That's why I always want Mank around. I hear you're hunting dangerous game. God bless William Randolph Hearst. Ready and willing to hunt the great white whale? Just call me Ahab. Do come in. At this rate, you will never finish. You said 90 days. Well, said 60. I'm doing the best I can. I have put up with your suicidal drinking, your compulsive gambling, your silly platonic affairs. You owe me, Herman. Who do you think you are? You're nothing but a court jester. What I want to know is why you think of it. It's a bit of a jumble, the collection of fragments that leap around in time like Mexican jumping beans. Welcome to my mind, old sock. Him, I get. But what did Marion ever do to deserve it's this? It's not her. Not all characters are headliners. Some are secondary. You pick a fight with Willie. You are finished. Mayor can't save you. Nobody can. Especially the boy genius from New York. I removed any distraction, eliminated every excuse. Your family, your cronies, liquor. I gave you a second chance. You cannot capture a man's entire life in two hours. All you can hope is to leave the impression of one. <laughs> Why Hurst? Outside his own blonde Betty Boop, you're always his favorite dinner partner. Are you familiar with the parable of the organ grinder's monkey? <laughs> And that's an early look at Mank, of course, uh, looking at it from the perspective of the screenwriter played by the wonderful Gary Oldman. And uh, I, I'm certainly stoked to see this. We've, we've seen this story told before. There was a, a film uh, called uh, RKO, and then there, there was a number after it. I can't remember the title, but it started Leave Schreiber, I think, as Orson Welles. RKO 28281. There we go. I knew it was yeah. something like that. I knew there was a two in it anyway. That's about Yeah, J- James Cromwell as William Randolph Hearst and Melly Griffiths as Marion Davies. Oh, and John Malkovich as Herman Mankiewicz. I might want to see that before we watch Mank. Yeah, that's, well, that's not a bad idea. In this case, uh, we have Gary Oldman as Mankiewicz, Amanda Seyfried as Marion Davies, and Charles Dance as Hearst, and um, also Tom Burke as uh, Orson Welles. And uh, I could see Dan's playing Hearst. That seems like good casting. And, and and Mankiewicz was friends with Hearst and Davies. And so I'm guessing the film hinges on their f- relationship and how it probably changed quite drastically after Citizen Kane came out. But I'm also curious about the behind the scenes look at the work that was done at the RKO studio, which is where Wells made one more film uh, prior to uh, basically uh, burning his bridge with that studio as far as being a director hired by the studio. And that film is called Journey into Fear and uh, perhaps not as well known as uh, Citizen Kane or the Magnificent Ambersons, perhaps because it's uh, certainly a lot more pulpy. It's not necessarily a great uh, work of art like those other two films either were or were intended to be, but it sure is a lot of fun. And it's um, 
it's a film that Wells does not get the director credit on. And uh, it was something that was being made almost simultaneously with the Magnificent Ambersons and then came out about a year after that film. But uh, it, it, it certainly is um, certainly is a, a, a whole ball of intrigue and international espionage and assassinations and plots and and, uh, you know, adventure happening basically on the fringes of the Second World War and like Turkey and uh, and the Black Sea and Odessa and that kind of thing. And uh, it's based on a novel by the great Eric Ambler, who uh, was really great at these kind of uh, murky, mysterious goings-on. They're not quite detective stories, but they are definitely mysterious, and they're not quite spy stories either, but they definitely have that 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 kind of intrigue happening as people get caught up in, in strange goings-on. In this case, it's Joseph Cotton uh, as Howard Graham, who works for a munitions company who uh, the Turkish authorities very much want to keep alive and which German agents very much want to waylay so that Turkey doesn't get its arms shipments, uh, which they will probably use in aid of um, supporting Russia and fighting back the Germans. Uh, And of course, uh, Cotton is kind of caught up in the middle of it. He's not really a man of action, but he's forced to defend himself with a couple of assassins on his trail and, uh, and a boatload of mysterious characters, any one of whom could be out there to take his life as they sail from uh, from Istanbul to Russia, and it's it's on these claustrophobic sets. Uh, you know, we're in cramped quarters a lot of the time, uh, and uh, it just it really has that kind of Wellsian feel to it, based on what we've seen in the previous two films. But it was directed, I think, for the most part, by Norman Foster, who. Um, was also an actor who also turns up in a much later Wells film in the 70s called Other Side of the Wind, which we'll talk about a little bit towards the end of the show. But uh, you can feel Wells' fingerprints all over this film. He's he's listed as a producer. It is a Mercury Theater production, uh, in, as we see in the opening credits. And of course, the Mercury Theater was the, the company that he created for both radio and the stage, and then for film with Citizen Kane. And uh, it's, it's just a lot of fun. It's only an hour and eight minutes long. Uh, which is 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 pretty remarkable considering everything that goes into it, but it just feels like everybody's having a lot of fun with this outrageous, outlandish story full of unbelievable twists and turns. Joseph Cotton worked on the screenplay, uh, maybe the only time he worked on a screenplay, and uh, Carl Strauss was the cinematographer who worked on classics like Sunrise, the great uh, F.W. Murnau uh, silent classic, Island of Lost Souls, uh, a, a beautiful-looking Paramount horror film, and the uh, Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde from the 1930s with Frederick March, which is also a, a wonderful film. So he had a, he had um, he certainly had a feel for the kind of the grotesque. And also the atmospheric. He was basically the perfect cameraman uh, to work on this with Orson Welles. And uh, I I certainly enjoyed it from start to finish. Yeah, I don't know if I loved it as much as you, Stephen. (laughs) Uh, I mean, I like I'm I'm a big fan of spy films generally. I think it may be even my favorite genre of films. Uh, And I was impressed that there's so much plotting and storytelling in a film that is basically 68 minutes long. Uh, And I really like seeing Orson Welles as the Turkish secret police captain, Colonel Hockey. Uh, (laughs) He's uh, he's got he gets some great lines. Uh, he says to the uh, Joseph Cotton's uh, armaments man, he says, you have an advantage over a soldier, Mr. Graham. You can run away without being a coward, you know, basically saying to him, you are, in fact, a coward. Um, and, and that's, the, I think, the thematic thrust of the film here is Graham's character is, you know, he's put in the situation where he has to defend himself, but he really is trying to get away from danger. He actually abandons his wife 
in Turkey because he's told, oh, it's better for her if she goes a different way than you because you're the one whose life is really in danger. Um, and yeah, he's not a very sympathetic character necessarily, but you do start to understand that he's really in over his head. Um, and, uh, you know, there are a lot of, it's a great ensemble on the ship. You got Agnes Moorhead again. She's, she's in there in the background. Dolores Del Rio as Josette, the dancer, and uh, Jack Durant as Gogo Martel, who complains that people are not compelled by law to play cards with me. Why do they squeal like stuck pigs when they lose? <laughs> you know, there's a lot of that sort of droll dialogue, which I think really helps, you know, make the film entertaining. I think my problem with it, if I was to be really critical, is that it feels like a first draft of something that should have had more time paid to it. Um, I feel like, like you know, and I, maybe it's just because it's hard for me to appreciate a film that's as short as this. I sort of feel like another 20 or 30 minutes, you might have had more time with the supporting cast, more characters to figure out what's going on. But the, the pacing is very intense. Um, and yeah, as you said, you know, Wells was constantly, his focus was all over the place. He was supposed to, he went to Brazil to shoot It's All True, one of his projects that never really was completed. And uh, yeah, but you, you're right. You can feel his fingers on this. And, uh, and uh, apparently he did shoot most of the scenes that he, I, re, I should say, directed most of the scenes that he himself is in. Yeah, he certainly gives himself a great showcase as Colonel Hockey, the, the head of, uh, of Turkish intelligence. You know, who, whose, whose interest is very much in, in keeping uh, Howard Graham alive, so that Turkey can get uh, its uh, its navy rearmed and and up to speed to um, to help its allies and resist the uh, the onslaught of uh, the Nazis. So, you know, the, the, there's definitely high stakes here. I I think the best way to approach this film is as a, a B film that's punching above its weight because R- RKO certainly was a studio that was um, you know heavily into making B pictures at this time and, and um, you know, doing the kind of double bill thing. And that's kind of what journey into fear feels like, even though uh, if you look at the posters, it's got Orson Welles, Mercury production, which is lending some prestige to a, to a film that, you know, yeah, it's, it's really kind of like if it was at Warner brothers, it would have been a, a B picture starring, I don't know, George raft or something like that. Right. Sure. Um, so, so it's, it's, I think, I feel like the material is certainly elevated by the talent that's in the film, the, the Mercury players, and uh, some of the other characters that that Wells has um, has tagged to be in the film, and and the talent behind the camera as well. So uh, he made The Stranger in 1946. This is a noir film. I also felt a little bit of the pulpiness of uh, Journey to Fear in this movie, where um, uh, Wells plays Charles Rankin, a Nazi hiding in a Connecticut town, being hunted by a man named Wilson, played by the amazing Edward G. Robinson, who tracks him down in the small town. I enjoyed seeing Wells as a Nazi, another monstrous character in his whole catalog of monstrous characters. I really appreciate his eagerness to play characters capable of terrible things. Uh, it's an interesting part of, sort of his sort of artistic uh, bent or his his way of expressing himself. Um, now Rankin is married to the daughter, or gets married to the daughter of a Supreme Court justice, and she's played uh, by Loretta Young. Her name is Mary Longstreet. Uh, she's really good in the film. Uh, and it looks like he's going to be home free, but when another Nazi, Conrad Conrad Meineke, played by Constantin Shane, uh, shows up, 
that's when he Edward G. Robinson's characters led to this town. And, you know, there's a lot to enjoy in this plot. I, I think, especially for a film made in 1946, I got to think that this felt very relevant. Uh, a lot of concern about the Nazis, even though maybe people didn't know necessarily all the terrible things that the Nazis had done in this film. You know, Wells plays one of the most evil characters you can imagine. He's not hes not just some prison guard. He's the actual architect of the final solution. Uh, maybe the most evil man on the planet. And uh, some of the parts of the film I think I enjoyed the most was when uh, Loretta Young's character starts to understand that she's married someone who has this enormous secret who is truly a terrible person. And... Uh, the only thing about it, I think maybe, you know, uh, Stephen, you may disagree, but but I felt like once that um, Edward G. Robinson's character is there in the town and he, he knows who this guy is, there's a lot of like waiting around. The pacing kind of goes slack about halfway in because I'm just like, well, why doesn't he just arrest this guy? He knows that this guy is the Nazi. is enough evidence to do it. But there is a lot of, you know, background uh, melodrama before we get to the finale. Uh, which which doubles down on on the fact that this character who might have gotten away if it wasn't for his obsession with clocks. <laughs> <laughs> well, this uh, this film was a work for hire. It was an independent production that was released by RKO. RKO didn't make it, and as as such, I feel like uh, maybe there was not quite as much meddling uh, on behalf of the the studio or the producers uh, in the making of this film as maybe there had been on. The ones that Wells had made up to this point, or at least on the Magnificent Ambersons, uh, and and maybe some meddling might have been a good thing if to tighten it up, perhaps. Uh, I mean, it's not that long; it's it's uh, I think ninety five minutes long. But you're right; it does go a bit slack. Um, you know, when uh, when Ed, you know the Mister uh, Wilson, the agent uh, who's who's been hunting these Nazis, played by uh, Edward G. Robinson. You know, it's pretty sure he's got his man, but but it, then there's just a lot of more more involvement with the citizens and uh, of the town, and and Rankin is allowed to kind of go about his business, you know, committing crimes and then covering them up and so on, and and it just uh, it does drag things out a little bit. But then it has a great climax, of course, uh, as you'd expect. That clock, which we've been keep cutting to <laughs> over the course of the film, just so happens to play a part in the climax. Who knew? Um, and uh, I, I don't think uh, I don't think Wells is terribly happy with this film in his later years. Uh, I think he saw flaws in it as well, you know, because it wasn't uh, one of his pet projects. Uh, he doesn't have a screen credit uh, on this on the screenplay, um, but obviously he would have had a hand in shaping it uh, uh, without taking a credit for it. But uh, but it doesn't necessarily feel, you know, as um, epic or, or mammoth or as personal as as the films we've seen up to this point. But it is a highly, highly entertaining thriller, and it's it's an interesting portrayal by by Wells as this villain, uh, as uh, as Rankin, who is who's who's not completely like a smooth character. He there are moments where he, his anger gets the better of him, and he flails about, and he's kind of awkward. And uh, I kind of enjoyed seeing him kind of lose his cool, like when he's in the woods and he's trying to run from his pursuers, and uh, or you know he's trying to see if a a body that's buried there has stayed where he, where it was left and that kind of thing. I, I find there are moments of, of um, you know, where, where the veneer comes off him and, and you see him as being kind of 
vulnerable despite him putting on his best face uh interesting to note that it's also one of the very first uh north american films to include footage from concentration camps we we talked about that uh recently with um judgment at nuremberg but uh, in the stranger in 1946 i think a lot of people would have been seeing some of this footage for the first time in what's otherwise a fairly you know conventional thriller and i think that would have been a big shock for people yeah yeah no absolutely and uh you don't see a lot of it but it's enough to know you know bring home the horrors of what uh this character has done Lindsay Cameron Wilson, host of The Food Podcast. But do you know what? It's not just about food. It's about people and their stories shared through the lens of food. The Food Podcast has been described as an audible fairy tale. How about that? You can find us on iTunes and Stitcher. So come join us. We would love to share our stories with you. And here we are back at Lens Me Your Ears. Today we're talking about Orson Welles and with a focus, I think, on his earlier work from the 1940s. And uh, Lady from Shanghai was the film that he uh, made in 1947 where he plays a man named Michael O'Hara, complete with dodgy Irish accent, <laughs> a sailor with a dark side who gets roped into working for a wealthy lawyer on his yacht. The lawyer's name is Arthur Bannister, and he has a hateful and disgruntled partner, George Grisby. He's got a private investigator named Sidney Bloom, or Broom, I should say, and he has a beautiful, unhappy wife, Elsa, played by uh, Rita Hayworth, who at the time was married to Orson Welles, though I guess he would they wouldn't be married for much longer after this film was released. No. Um, so naturally, Michael falls in love with the beautiful Elsa, or Rosalie, as he calls her. Uh, then he makes a number of terrible decisions. Uh, Grimsby convinces him to help, uh, or I should say Grisby. I can't seem to get these names right. Grisby t- tells him that he wants to fake his own death, but it's part of another big con, which eventually lands Michael in jail for murder. It's a, uh, you get a, we get, at a certain point in the film, we get an entirely comedic trial sequence. Uh, interesting to see how Orson Welles' tone veers from romantic melodrama to noirish crime drama to something altogether more goofy um yeah so outrageous plot aside i thought this felt a little bit like maybe wells more conventional side of filmmaking i found it interesting how wells himself plays a deeply flawed character and how he was always drawn to that kind of character here he's dumb enough to get caught up in what i thought was a very transparent con and the reveal of who actually does the killing is also pretty obvious, but at least his character, Michael in, as he does a narration and flashback uh, admits that he's stupid for having gotten involved. Uh, But I did find it all pretty entertaining, uh, including Orson Welles's Irish accent and, and kind of philosophizing. He tells these sort of, you know, tales of, of having been a sailor on the sea and having witnessed terrible things. And he once killed a man, but uh, it was in war. So it wasn't murder. And, you know, these kinds of uh, kind of conversations happen throughout the film with these pretty vivid characters. Uh, yeah. So and, uh, and I should say also that I really enjoyed the finale in San Francisco's Chinatown, um, which 
you know, surprisingly, wasn't actually culturally insensitive, I didn't think. Um, and there's an, uh, an absolute, there is also a scene that takes place in an empty amusement park in a hall of mirrors that is very impressive and I could, I think is probably fairly, in, um, you know, it, it inspired a lot of other filmmakers in the years following. Um, that is worth the price of admission. Uh, Stephen, what did you make of uh, Lady from Shanghai? It's it's a it's a fantastic thriller. I think it's uh, it's it's kind of unrelenting in its pace. I mean, it, it opens with an action scene where uh, O'Hara meets Elsa, and uh, she's immediately being mugged in a park, and he's got to come to defend herself. And he gets you just you're just feeling the web around him wrapped tighter and tighter by her and her husband uh, Arthur Bannister, played by Everett Sloan, who's of course a an Orson Welles regular um, over the years, and. It, it, uh, it it doesn't let up. I, I just like that there isn't a lot of fat on its bones and, and that uh, every character seems to be swinging for the fences with their portrayals. Uh, you know, Bannister and Grisby, the, the two lawyers who have this partnership, are these, you know, they're obviously being played to be annoying. Like, they're, they're meant to kind of grate on your nerves. And it's it's just two wonderful character roles by Sloan and, and Glenn Anders, who plays Grisby. Like, the way Arthur Bannister you know, keeps referring to Rita Hayworth as lover. <laughs> every, every, every time he says it, it just sets your teeth on edge. And, and Grisby just has that kind of creaky good time, Charlie kind of voice that it's, uh, it, I, I just find it's a wonderful portrayal. I, I feel like those are elements of, um, of Wells's radio days kind of coming to the fore where, where he would put on these plays and really rely on those kind of outrageous character voices to kind of sell a story uh, over the airwaves. And it, uh, it works pretty well here. Everything is fairly heightened. And then, uh, and then we get to the trial, which is kind of, you know, as you said, played for laughs, uh, the trial scenes, especially with Erskine Sanford as the judge who, who, you know, is a comedic role. And we've seen uh, he, he's he's also very um, comedic in Citizen Kane as well, uh, where he shows up there. So uh, it, I, I like the fact that that Wells uh, isn't taking the material too, too seriously. But, uh, you know, he, he definitely wants to uh, to push some buttons with some of the sequences in this film, especially, as you say, the, the amusement park scene, which has been copied uh, over and over and over again in so many different ways uh, in the years since this thing film came out but at the same time you see that that scene has its own influences there's 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 elements of it that look like they were taken right out of the cabinet of dr caligari uh, you know the the great expressionist german silent classic uh has its influence on that so it's it's kind of interesting to see how uh the more things change the more they stay the same but it, it's part of that great uh, film continuity yeah no i can see that and, and i appreciate that that Wells has already always known his film history and he's built on that with his own style, but clearly in some ways he's influenced other filmmakers, maybe not so much with Citizen Kane, which still is so stylistically unique and uh, specific, but in other ways he has certainly. Uh, now we did move forward closer to our, our time with some of his uh, other films. We didn't spend any time looking at his... Uh, um, Shakespearean films, you know, uh, Chimes of Midnight or, or Othello. But uh, we did watch Mr. Arcaden or Arcaden. It's on uh, the Criterion Channel from 1955. It's also known as the Confidential Report when it was released in the UK in a different version. In fact, uh, Criterion Channel has a bunch of these different versions um, available to watch. Uh, now, I'm going to just give you a sense of this 
hyper plotted film. I'm not going to go into it too much, but but I will tell you that uh, it's about this character named Guy Van Stratton, played by Robert Arden, who is actually not that great in the movie. <laughs> but uh, he's an American smuggler who's trying to save the life of an older man named Zook, uh, who doesn't particularly want to be saved. Van Stratton is at his rundown flat in Munich, and he tells him a story, which we see in flashback, of how Van Stratton and his girlfriend, uh, played by Patricia Medina, uh, named Millie, she of the big black eyes, she has these like incredibly dark eyes on film, um, were on the docks in Naples, and a man named Bracco died in front of them, having been stabbed, potentially by a man with a peg leg. Now, before Bracco dies, he tells them two names, one of which is Gregory Arcaden, and who turns out to be a wealthy industrialist. And that's all in the first five minutes. Wells goes serious pulp here. He throws a lot of information at us, but it is a lot of fun. I will give it that. The scenes where Van Stratton is trying to get close to Arcaden, who, of course, is played by Wells, uh, through his daughter, Reina, played by Paolo Mori, uh, and explaining his plan, plan to his friends, who we never see again. They just show up for one scene. They, they might be grifters or musicians or, you know, someone else. Uh, it's all just... There's so much going on, the camera whipping around, lots of fast editing. There's a lot of really interesting visual ideas here, which I really enjoyed. It's a very kinetic film. Um, and uh, and again, once again, Wells plays this uh, nasty sort of f- fake beardy growling character, uh, quite a, a kind of iconic and huge. Like he's at this point, he's get he just towers over everyone around him um I, I i really i actually had a really good time with mr arcaden it's it's an appealingly trashy uh, thriller uh what did you make of it Stephen? yeah i feel like uh this is where you can start to see the the wheels really coming off the orson wells bus as it were um <laughs> because uh, of course you know he he is dealing with uh a paucity of a budget at this point. I mean, he had been on Othello, which came out a, a couple of years before this and was also like an international co-production kind of thing. Um, but this is really where, um, you know, he's pulling together films from all these different elements and, and, you know, shooting things on the fly. And there's, there's at least two, maybe three other characters that are actually dubbed by Wells himself um, as well as uh, himself. And it does show the kind of, um, creaks and and stresses of international co-production with characters being dubbed and and things being shot on on different locations and kind of matched up and so on and and then again having a lead robert arden who is yeah really not that appealing (laughs) although he did have a career uh you know in bit parts and tv work and stuff right up until about 2000 or so but uh but you know kind of a obvious and intrusive character over the course of the film but uh, even so, as you say, uh, uh, Wells' command over the filmmaking and over you know the visual invention and, and making the most of what he has to work with uh, is is fully in evidence. And uh, it, you know the, the sort of comprehensive version that uh, some Wells scholars and people like Peter Bogdanovich were able to put together in the end, I think, does hold together pretty well. Uh, you know, I saw the confidential report version years ago again on a Criterion Laserdisc, and the improvements they've made in both the look of the film and in in its um, structure uh, are really uh, are really quite remarkable and. I think there were, if you if you go through the special features on the Criterion edition of this, I think there were like at least five different cuts of this movie. Mm-hmm. So they really had their work cut out for them. But it you know it is kind of a high adventure um, 
with with lots of elements of uh, of his previous work in evidence over the course of the film. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, I would recommend it. I think if anyone wants to take a deep dive into uh, based on uh, my, you know our experience this uh, this week looking at his films. Um, now, I had a quick look at some of the clips from Touch of Evil, which I've seen some years ago. It, we can't talk about Orson Welles without at least mentioning his 1958 film. It's one of his best known films. It's gorgeous, a film noir famed for its three plus minute opening shot and having cast Charlton Heston as a Mexican, which let's face it, not only is he badly cast, but he's an egregious brown face. Um, But the film itself is still a wonder to behold. And I know you're a fan, Stephen, of, of Touch of Yeah, Me. big time. And and of course, the casting of Heston is, is kind of a damned if you do, damned if you don't kind of thing. Because if he hadn't starred in the film, it probably wouldn't have got made. Or it wouldn't have been made, it wouldn't have been a Warson Wells film. Because he's the one who went to bat for Wells, you know, who's already cast to play the crooked cop, uh, Captain Quinlan. You know, he went to bat for having uh, Wells also direct it. But uh, yeah, we I don't know that we need to dwell on it too much. It's its reputation stands for itself. But it is this fascinating cross-border nightmare uh, of a film, uh, especially considering what uh, Janet Lee, who plays uh, the wife of Mike Vargas, the um, the Mexican D.A. played by uh, Heston. Um, you know, she goes through a real hellish experience while he's trying to chase down what's happening with this explosion that happens in the opening scene and how it's connected to a man that he's already investigating. And then uh, Quinlan's attempts to set up Vargas himself as kind of a patsy for some of the crimes that he's committing over the course of the film. It's 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 a film that uh, rewards repeat viewing and uh, even just to get some of the basics of the, the plot together. Uh, it's 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 not as confusing as I'm making it sound, but you really have to pay attention. There, there's things, just lines of dialogue in the opening five minutes that will have resonance, you know, in the last act of the film. But, uh, you know, I, I love the feel of the film, the dark border town, corrupt netherworld. Uh, as Vargas says early in the film, all border towns bring out the worst in a country. And here you've got, um, <laughs> you know, two towns kind of mashed up against each other. And you've got Quinlan uh, on the U.S. side, who's kind of rotten to the core, and Vargas, who's the crusading... Um, the Mexican attorney, it, it it's it's got some um, some of Wells' thoughts about the state of uh, of civil rights, which is a theme I really hadn't thought about that much uh, early in my viewing of this film. It's something that sort of came to later um, through the work of people like Jonathan Rosenbaum, who contributes a great uh, commentary to one of the versions that's available out there. Yeah, it, it's it takes uh, elements of film noir, but really elevates them to to something new and exciting. Yeah, and I think Touch of Evil is considered probably Wells' last great film. Um, Though, you know, his work is always worth seeing, and there's lots of curiosity value to later films like The Trial. And uh, one of his incomplete films, as we mentioned, was recently completed with the the help of uh, Peter Bogdanovich uh, called The Other Side of the Wind, and it has been released on Netflix. Now, um, curious myself about how it would be, I went and watched it, and I got it about 20 minutes in before I had enough. Uh, It just feels like a completely indulgent vanity project, Uh, you know, and a lot of the footage is from the 60s or early 70s. It's kind of a mockumentary about a filmmaker's last day, Uh, and 
you know, uh, I guess in some ways it made me think of Neil Gaiman's Signal to Noise, which is a graphic novel that I'm a big fan of. Except that film, that story, I felt was anyway. I, I shouldn't I shouldn't try to review it because I didn't finish it. <laughs> but maybe I'll need to. Maybe I need to uh, come back to it when I have a little more patience. I just I wasn't. I wasn't really getting it. I, I just it just felt kind of obnoxious to me. But you watched all of it, Stephen. So so maybe you should have the final word. It, on it. It's a lot to contest with. I have to say, uh, you know, I'm, I, I mean, I find it compelling because, of course, John Huston plays the fading director, Jake Hannaford. And of course, John, John Huston is my favorite director and is and as an actor, he's always commanding on on screen, as we know from from Chinatown, which just happens to be your favorite film. Um, and here, well, one, one of them, but, them, but, but yes, high up right. There. Yeah. <laughs> high up there. Yep. Kind of a Wells surrogate, although the film that he's made, um, because, of course, he's gathered his his acolytes and, um, you know, his uh, his admirers and his his um, you know his cronies around for a screening of the footage from his new film, which is which feels like a parody of Zabriskie Point. Uh, it feels like uh, Orson Welles is taking on multiple targets with this film: the the, the Hollywood elite and also um, you know kind of the more pretentious uh, figures in the art film world or the international film world, and uh, and maybe you know some of the people in his his own life uh, probably take a few hits as well. And uh, it's. It's an interesting odyssey uh, in this kind of one night, final night in the life of this director. Uh, it, it feels at times it feels more like an Altman film with overlapping dialogue and, and you know, these kind of formless scenes that there's an Im- improvisational feel about the film. Uh, and at times it, it kind of reminded me of uh, Beyond the Valley of the Dolls, actually, the, the Russ Meyer film about uh, Hollywood and the music biz. Uh, and and I, you know, kudos to the crew that, that put it together. I'm sure they could have reassembled this material in any number of different ways uh it's it does come off as more of a curio than an important film but it is interesting to see how wells technique and storytelling um methods are are still in effect and also to see familiar faces from films gone by i mean this this is 1970 and we see paul stewart who is in citizen kane he shows up as a character and mercedes mccambridge from um touch of evil she's in here as well uh mingling with newer actors like bogdanovich and susan strasberg and oya kadar who is uh wells's uh lover and muse i guess uh who plays the actress who um is seen kind of wandering through the desert and through abandoned film sets in the film within the film uh an intriguing curio is probably the the best i can say about this but uh but one that i'm glad i saw So that brings us to the end of a part one of two parts of Lens Me Your Ears. We have really enjoyed looking back at the films of Orson Welles. Next time out, we'll talk about David Fincher and his adaptation or his his version of uh, what happened behind the scenes in Welles' Citizen Kane, a, a film called Mank, which is coming soon. Lens Me Your Ears is available to be reached through Facebook. We've got a Facebook page. We also have a Twitter account, Lens Me Your Ears. I'm on Twitter as Flaw in the Iris. It's the name of my blog. And Stephen, you're on Twitter as well. Yes, you can find me at at NS underscore S-C-O-O-K-E. Lens Me Your Ears uh, is played on CKDU every second Tuesday at 5.30 in Halifax. Very much appreciate CKDU for that. Many thanks as well to Village Soundcast Network for the production. Uh, And we will talk about movies soon. Thank you so much for listening. 
Lends Me Your Ears is hosted by Stephen Cook and Karsten Knox and is produced in Halifax, Nova Scotia at Village Sound for the Village Soundcast Network. All music courtesy of Gypsophilia. Send feedback to lendsmeyourearspodcast at gmail.com. We'd love to hear from you. Thanks for listening. This was a Village Soundcast Network original production. 